This is a story about two social work students who met through a COVID-induced class on the social determinants of health. I'm Kino, one of those students. Before I took this class, I was already worried about the growing wealth gap between the Bezos and the Gates of the world and, well, the rest of us. Many of us in our MSW program were working full-time, raising a family, and paying off student debt to pursue a career known for you know, low wages and high caseloads because we saw the need for social workers. But this was all while Bezos on a bad day made $87,500 per minute. Now, let that sink in. Although, you know, wealth isn't inherently evil, something was deeply wrong about this picture, but I didn't know quite what to do about it or or what, it, what was really wrong about it. Uh, then our professor, Dr. Yelena Tadek, pointed out the flashlight to a solution that offered some way out of this mess. She paired me up with Sarah to explore the concept and reality of cooperative businesses and encouraged us to imagine a more cooperative world. And before embarking on this podcast-making journey, Neither of us was extremely passionate about economics, and it kind of felt wrong to bash capitalism because at least I grew up thinking that the free market is what makes America the innovative, visionary-generating, productive country in the first place. But as we began collecting pieces of information about American capitalism, we started to become a bit obsessed. For the first time, we saw it for what it is, a system that was never designed to value human beings, a system that prioritizes profits over people, low prices over quality, and most importantly, a system that works for the minority of us and not the majority. Although we didn't love American capitalism before this podcast journey, we had no idea how bad it was, what we could do about it, and even if we could do something about it. We just assumed that this is how it is, and trying to change it would be like trying to move a mountain to the other side of a river. But the question of if we could do something about it is only asked in the absence of hope. It is not a matter of whether or not we can do something, but a matter of what we choose to do. If anti-capitalism talk makes you uncomfortable, good. It's the first sign that something isn't right. In a country that boasts freedom as its core value, the values and consequences of our economic system should be up for discussion. That is, we should be talking about it. We have to talk about it. Does it work? Who does it work for? And what does work even mean? The short answer is that, yeah, it does work. But mostly for a small percentage of us. Our current system is great at allowing those with capital to accumulate more capital. It's actually in the name. Capital ism. But understand that just under 12% of the U.S. population, or to put it into perspective, 39 million people, that's 39 with six zeros after the nine, which is actually more than the entire population of Canada, currently lives under the poverty threshold. We are not okay with this system. We don't have all the answers to the big questions that we face, but simply observing whether or not our systems are in line with our personal values, as well as, well as social work values, whether or not they're working for or against us, is the only way that we can start to develop a sense of autonomy and control over our circumstances. If you're going to invest the next 30 minutes of your time listening to this podcast, we want to make sure that you know exactly what to expect. Before we get to co-ops, we first want to touch on the concept of health equity. That is, the idea that everyone in the U.S. should have the ability to be as healthy as possible. While it's a simple idea, it's certainly not the case in 2020. We will also take a look at how the COVID-19 pandemic has worsened these health inequities. And we'll discuss co-ops or cooperatives as the, as the long name. They're an alternative to the traditional corporate structure that dominates American capitalism today. Co-ops value people over profits 
and embody democracy, equity, and social responsibility, as well as other values that we'll get into. We believe co-ops would fundamentally change the way we think about our relationship with work, with our local communities, and with ourselves. With this new perspective, we can begin to envision living in a world in which 39 million citizens of one of the wealthiest countries are not struggling for basic needs, and everyone has a fair chance to lead a comfortable, meaningful, and healthy life. Lastly, by the end of this podcast, you should be able to recognize co-op's relevance to social work and how they can help eliminate health inequities. My name is Sarah. And I'm Kino. Let's get started. We have some work to do. Before diving into the world of cooperatives, we want to set the stage by elaborating on the concept of health equity and how COVID-19 has made these disparities so much more evident. We want to start with this because we truly believe that a more cooperative economy has the potential to reduce these health inequities. First of all, here's a well-thought-out definition of health equity according to Braveman and colleagues in their 2018 Behavioral Health and Policy article titled, What is Health Equity? Quote, Health equity means that everybody has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. Achieving this requires removing obstacles such as poverty and discrimination and their consequences, which include powerlessness and a lack of access to good jobs with fair pay, quality education, housing, and healthcare, and safe environments, end quote. Wow. I don't think anyone could disagree that this should be the case in every society in the 21st century, right? Yeah, the idea that everybody should have a fair and equal chance to be healthy seems so baseline, but when we think about all the factors that actually impact health, it's clear that we have a lot of work to do. So how do we know that health equity doesn't exist in the U.S. today? Well, when we look at health outcomes for different socially identifiable groups, uh, such as according to socioeconomic status, uh, race and ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, we see differences that persist beyond individual choice. What exactly do you mean by SES, socioeconomic status? Yeah, by SES, uh, I mean a combination of someone's education, income, wealth, and occupation. Research has long shown that higher SES correlates with better health outcomes, not only in the U.S., but in other societies over time as well. And I know that you've done some digging into SES as well as a social determinant of health. Uh, What connections did you find? Well, low socioeconomic status can impact people in a lot of different ways. Take educational attainment as one example. In the U.S., public schools receive funding based on local property taxes, which means that schools in lower income areas will always receive less funding than schools within higher income neighborhoods. So this policy essentially makes it harder for those in less wealthy neighborhoods to achieve the same level of educational attainment compared to those in more affluent neighborhoods? Pretty much. And research done by Egerter shows that educational attainment affects health through many different pathways, including occupation, which heavily depends on your educational attainment. Typically, higher levels of educational attainment open the door to better working conditions, more work-related resources such as health insurance, sick leave, and wellness programs, and of course, higher income. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you think about the relationship between income and health, it's so much more than just access to medical care. And of course, medical care is, is definitely important for health, but it alone doesn't explain the gradient that the research shows us about the positive correlation between income and health. Um, Braveman and colleagues in 2010 made the point in the American Journal of Public Health that income and education offers, quote, access to a range of opportunities and resources that shape health through myriad, often complex pathways and physiological mechanisms, end quote. One of these pathways is through various working conditions. Some jobs are just physically more dangerous than others. 
whether this is through exposure to hazardous materials like toxic chemicals and COVID-19, or by proximity to heavy machinery, your working conditions really matter for long-term impacts on health. Mm. Also, it's important to note that these types of jobs are statistically more likely to be held by economically disadvantaged populations, adding to their already heavy allostatic load. That's really well put. There are so many factors outside of just healthcare that can directly impact a person's health. Another thing to consider in this conversation is the intersection between racism and health, which is really critical to understanding health disparities overall. Historically, marginalized populations have have a disproportionate burden of health issues, have health issues such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, asthma, HIV, morbid obesity, liver disease, and kidney disease. For example, African-American women who are, by all objective measures, of high SES, their rates of infant mortality are still significantly higher than that of white women. The Maternal Mortality and Morbidity Task Force and Department of State Health Services Joint Biennial Report issued in September of 2018 calls critical attention to Black mothers dying at 2.3 times higher rates than white women, regardless of their income, education, marital status, or other health factors. People of color are also statistically more likely to fall into lower SES brackets. In 2014, it was reported that 39% of African-American youth and 33% of Hispanic youth were classified as living in poverty, more than double the percent of the white population. In 2017, the American Psychological Association reported the unemployment rate among African-Americans to be almost double that of the white population, and that African-American men working full-time only made 72% of the income that white men did. These numbers are are outrageous, but it makes sense in the context of uh, slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, and racial capitalism. All of this alone is alarming enough, but it doesn't even take into account the trauma caused by everyday discrimination that people of color continue to endure. This can cause lasting trauma and psychological damage that can often go untreated making racism a very real threat to long-term health and well-being of an already already vulnerable population. Within all these factors is also the underlying common issue of stress. As reported by the World Health Organization, social and psychological circumstances can cause long-term stress, continuing continuing anxiety, insecurity, low self-esteem, social isolation, and a lack of control over work and home life have powerful effects on health. Such psychological risks accumulate during life and increase the chances of poor mental health and premature death. This combination of factors is referred to as allostatic load, which can be defined as the wear and tear on the body that accumulates over time as a result of chronic stress. Stress is really easy for us to disregard as part of the human experience, but levels of stress really vary drastically between people. Not to mention that there are huge disparities in access to resources to help people cope with stress in healthy ways. It's not like we learn how to cope with stress in school. It's not taught in schools. So if it's not taught in schools and it's not taught in homes, uh, then where can we learn to, to cope with stress? That's true. People are constantly being overloaded with stressors and are not often given the tools to cope. A lot of times in our culture, stress is also preventable. Occupation-related stress is a really big example here. Job-related stress can come from so many different areas. It's also easy to forget that there are psychological factors associated with work that can contribute to mental health issues and chronic stress. A huge one is a lack of job stability, which has been shown to correlate with high blood pressure. Minoritized ethnic groups have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. This is not a speculation, but substantiated by empirical data that you can readily find on cdc.gov. The CDC offers these reasons as to why they have an increased risk. Discrimination, 
healthcare access and utilization, occupation, education, income and wealth gaps, and housing. Since this information is readily available, we won't get into all the details here. Rather, we'll highlight a few that stand out to us. One statistic that stood out to me was that in Chicago, quote, the COVID-19 mortality rate is significantly higher among the African-American population. For every 100,000 COVID-related deaths, 187 of these were African-American individuals, while 159 were from the Latino population, but only 81 were from the white population. Also, according to the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, 2,595 patients tested for COVID-19 at a Milwaukee hospital from March 12th to March 31st. And of the 369 patients who tested positive, 218 were Black. Black patients were also 5.4 times more likely than those of other races to test positive. Job loss as a result of COVID-19 has also been widespread and unforgiving. I've heard stories from several of my 20-something-year-old friends about hours spent on the phone with the unemployment office after being laid off, only to have to hang up and try again the next day. This experience is not at all uncommon. Unemployment reportedly reached 14.7% in April, and while it has since dropped back down to 79 this does not at all erase the stress and hardships that thousands of Americans faced in those six months of not having a job with minimal support from an overwhelmed unemployment office and a single stimulus check of $1,200. And I think the the concept of unemployment is important here because unemployment matters a lot more when you have less wealth. And we know that through data, uh, people of color are less, they have less wealth than um, than do than do whites, and you know if you have a lot of savings, you can probably afford to be unemployed for a little bit, um, maybe even for a while. Whereas if you uh, are in debt and you don't have a lot of uh, wealth saved up, as the data shows, then unemployment is going to affect you uh, a lot more and contribute to um, the well-being of you and your family. And, right. Yeah, that safety net is really important. And when it's just mm-hmm. not working as it should be, especially in times of big crisis like we are now, it's just really detrimental to those people who don't have backup savings to live six months without any money from the government or any kind of job. Right. And, and we know that through um, by learning history that uh one of the the best ways to accumulate wealth in the United States is uh, through housing. And people of color have been um, disproportionately or just outright um, not allowed to to buy housing in certain areas and not given mortgages and and loans. So they they were, they missed out on generations of wealth. Um, And that's, that's where we are today. And it's just important to realize that um, and not to just blame the individual for for their circumstances. Um, Although individual choice is important, it's not everything when you consider um, something like the historical context and and thinking more in terms of um, eco-social theory. And while job loss is definitely a huge stressor, the situation for those who have had to work through the pandemic isn't much better, is it? No, those who were unable to avoid the virus by staying home experienced the pandemic from an entirely different perspective. These essential workers had to adapt to changes brought by COVID while also enduring the panic of the masses, a panic of the masses, and also worrying about their own well-being and the safety of their family. That's already difficult enough, but in some cases, frontline workers weren't even given suitable protection to safely perform the jobs that they had to. It was reported in May that only 16% of large grocery store employees had access to masks, which is, as we know, one of the most basic protections for working through this Mm -hmm. pandemic. Making this worse is that people of color are also statistically more likely to be frontline workers, putting them at higher risk for exposure. 
That's crazy. And, you know, I didn't realize this at the time when social distancing was first beginning to be a thing, um, that social distancing is actually a privilege. And statistically, uh, minoritized populations have higher rates of comorbidity and they live in more crowded areas uh, where social distancing is less feasible. That's true. Pre-COVID, health disparities between ethnicities and classes were already pervasive across the country. But this pandemic really serves as a reminder that these disparities define the state of our nation. It urges us to do better, to acknowledge the failing system, and to work to improve it so that we can live in a place in which everybody has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. So how can we begin working toward eliminating these inexcusable disparities? So far, we've talked about health equity, how the COVID-19 pandemic has really brought these inequities to light. And we hope that we've made it clear by now that not everyone has the equal opportunity to be as healthy as possible. And now we'll get into the good stuff, the light at the end of this long, dark tunnel, co-ops. Co-ops have an extensive and fascinating history. While the modern day version of co-ops go back to 1800s England, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, human beings have been cooperating with each other since the early days of human societies, like long before electricity was a thing. Our ancestors learned to work together to hunt, fish, build shelter, and survive. And arguably, this is one of the very traits that make us human. That sounds great, but we're not hunters and gatherers anymore. The world we live in is far more complex and couldn't possibly work under this model of cooperating. You're right. Today's societies are much more complex. But just as human civilization has become more complex, so did cooperative economies. Let me take you to a region of northern Spain called the Basque Country. Here, the population is over 2.1 million, and more than 81,000 people work for the Mondragon Corporation. And although this sounds like a scary big company, it's actually a co-op. More specifically, Mondragon is one of the largest corporations in Spain and is actually a business group made up of 98 self-governing Co-ops. Their website reads, quote, we are a dedicated group of people with a cooperative identity forming a business group that is profitable, competitive, and enterprising, capable of successfully operating in global markets. Our organization uses democratic methods in its corporate organization, and its aims are employment, the personal and professional achievement of its workers, and the development of its community, end quote. That sounds like an ideal standard that all businesses should strive for. And the size and success of Mondragon really shows that businesses don't have to sacrifice the well-being of their workers in order to be prosperous. Yeah, it's the ultimate example of what co-ops can be and what they can do. And that's not, only, that's not the only example. But before just giving you a list of uh, co-ops that you can head over to support, I think it's important to first broaden our conceptualization of what co-ops are. Yeah, co-ops can be a bit confusing to those unfamiliar with them because they exist in a few different forms. We'll touch on the main ones, but the main focus of this episode will be on what's known as the worker co-op. Right, and to define worker co-ops, we turn to the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives that defines worker co-ops as, quote, a values-driven business that puts worker and community benefit at the core of its purpose, end quote. And they add that the two most important characteristics of worker co-ops are that, quote, workers own the business and they participate in its financial success on the basis of their labor contribution to the cooperative, and workers have representation and vote for the board of directors 
adhering to the principle of one worker, one vote, end quote. So basically, if you work at a worker co-op, you're not just an employee collecting a paycheck, but a part owner of the business. Personally, I can see why this business model could work because I would be a lot more invested in my job if I actually had a stake in the business. Right. It just makes so much sense. And I think that a growing number of co-ops in the U.S. speaks to this uh, common sense philosophy. Yeah, the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperations, which is the National Grassroots Membership Organization for Worker Co-ops, estimates that there are actually over 300 Democratic workplaces in the United States that employ approximately 7,000 people and generate over $400 million in annual revenues. Wow. So it's, it's clear that the concept of co-ops have been around for a while and that there are lo- lots of worker co-ops in the U.S. Um, and generating a lot of profit. Um, but what do we actually mean by worker co-ops? Well, every worker co-op is a bit different from one another, just as every business is different. But since worker co-ops are fundamentally driven by values, we can get a good sense of what they're about by understanding the core values. And can you lay out those values for us? Yeah, they're self-help, self-responsibility, equality, equity, solidarity, and democracy. And while these may seem kind of obvious on the surface, each of them is really critical in shaping how worker co-ops do things. So I'll talk about the first one, self-help. It refers to both the individual self as well as the collective self. And it means doing the most you can uh, to meet your needs given your circumstances before seeking help. So this means that each member has a responsibility to help themselves while also acting in a way that benefits the cooperative as a whole. This gives members a sense of further ownership of the business while also encouraging them to um, act in a way that's mutually beneficial to the whole co-op. Mm-hmm. And the second one, self-responsibility, it means to be responsible for the consequences of your behavior Um, Again, both individually and collectively as a co-op. So an example of this um, is that a co-op might take responsibility for its uh, greenhouse emissions by by going carbon neutral. Or this could also mean a co-op recognizing institutional biases and discrimination and doing its best to kind of tackle that within its own functioning and within the industry. Yeah. And the next value of co-ops is equality. Uh, In the words of the late Sid Fabenhuski, a prominent and loved co-op advocate, quote, equality as a value flows from the traditional wisdom that each person, irrespective of talent, skill, or appearance, possesses an intrinsic value and thus as a human is of no greater or lesser value than anyone else, end quote. And how, like, I don't, I have never seen a a business, um, a a large corporation in the U.S. that, um, that puts this type of value at its core because, um, you know, this is kind of the opposite of, of what we've been taught and what we see is that, well, no, actually, if, if, if you have more credentials, if you have more letters after your name, you are of more value. Um, so it's just kind of a crazy, it's kind of a, a new concept. Yeah, just valuing people for being people, not for, like you said, their credentials or education or anything else like that. Yeah. Yeah. So equity is a co-op value that refers to the protection that members of co-ops have through the ownership of corporate property and assets, which allow for fairness within the ways authority is expressed over members. In other words, each member of a co-op, regardless of job title, owns an equal share of the company. And this allows for all voices to be heard equally when making big decisions. The value of solidarity, as described by Sid Fabhashki, quote, refers to the respect and dignity with which the individual persons of the community relate to one another. 
It is a relationship that grows out of each person seeing the other as a valuable as valuable as the self. End quote. He goes on to explain that solidarity encompasses this crucial concept of interdependency and community. Last but not least, co-ops operate on the value of democracy. Democracy is, in my opinion, the value that sets co-ops apart from the traditionally hierarchical corporate structure. The other values do as well, but this one stands out to me. By democracy, we're talking about uh, electing the heads of companies through popular elections. We're talking about each member of a co-op, regardless of rank, getting one and only one vote for making corporate decisions. And this is typically not how traditional corporations work. In traditional companies, the more shares you own, the more decision-making power that you get. Uh, it kind of works like this. You, you bring in capital, you buy shares, and you get to make decisions. And this is the pervasive business model in the U.S. today, but it's bad news for health equity. But it doesn't have to be. We can choose to support the expanding co-op movement. We can choose to bring democracy back into our businesses. Corporate democracy is more than just electing a board of directors. It's a philosophy that honors the fullest sense of the democratic process through consulting those who will be affected by a given decision openly and freely. What's more American than that? And if you want to check out worker co-ops near you, we'll share where you can find a directory of worker co-ops in the U.S. by state at the end of this podcast. Another example of worker co-ops in the U.S. is Cooperative Home Care Associates, or CHCA. CHCA is actually one of the, um, the biggest worker co-ops in the U.S., and According to some sources, it's, it is the biggest worker co-op in the U.S. And we were lucky enough to get an interview from someone from CHCA so that we can get a better sense of how worker co-ops on a large scale can actually work. CHCA is a uh, New York City-based home health care provider that trains over 600 low-income women each year to provide home care to those who need it. And these providers are given the opportunity to become worker owners of the company, which means that they get to vote democratically on who gets to manage the company. To make sure that power stays in the hands of the frontline workers, so the women that are uh, providing the aid, the board of, direct the board of directors is always majority healthcare workers. Uh, what I mean by this is that the board of directors, um, if there's you know, 12 of them, at least seven will always um, be filled by the position of the actual aides out there um, on the front line instead of you know, managers and you know, CEOs, CEOs, whatever um, title that, that, that you have. And CHCA, using the co-op model, it, it flips the traditional idea that workers like, work under the boss. Like, rather, in this case, the boss works for the workers. That's a really good example also of how co-ops can work to really bolster already vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. So what other kind of co-ops are there out there? Well, roughly speaking, there are four main types of co-ops. There's the housing, consumer, producer, and what we've been talking about, the worker co-op. Producer co-ops, which are a cooperative way for producers, typically in agriculture, uh, to band together to bring their goods to the market. This way, even small farmers get a chance to market their goods without any need for outside investors, you know, which can complicate how they run their farms. Farmers in a co-op make decisions together and share profits among all members uh, rather than outside investors. There's also a big community investment piece in this. So income from farmer-owned co-ops is usually put back into the business or returned to the member. So in rural communities, farm co-ops are essential to support local communities and their economies. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and Lando Lakes is a great example of how successful a producer co-op can be. With $14 billion in net sales and a commitment to sustainability, corporate responsibility, and agricultural innovation, Lando Lakes is proof that the co-op model can thrive if done right. Next, we have the consumer co-op, which is actually the most common type of co-op. It's, it's a basic idea that the consumer pays a membership fee into the co-op, which allows him to basically vote in the board of directors. I can definitely see how that's a positive thing, but a voting stake alone doesn't really seem like it would make that big of an impact by itself. Yeah, in a consumer co-op, that's true um, because it's typically it's made up of lots and lots of people, like uh, depending on the size of the company, thousands of people. So um, one vote, you know, won't change everything. But the difference between uh, consumer co-ops and traditional companies is their values. Consumer co-ops. Uh, they exist to deliver goods and services to meet the needs of the community, whereas traditional companies typically uh, focus heavily on, you know, just making large profits by using outside investors um, whose investment may only be in the form of capital and not so much community investment. Yeah, another big difference is that consumer co-ops actually give out dividends to their members as part of the earned profits. The rest of the profits are either used based on the board of directors who are democratically voted in by the members. So the members of consumer cops are really getting a say in where these funds are going. Yeah. And one of my favorite examples is uh, REI. It's the the outdoor gear company. And it's actually the largest consumer co-op in the U.S. Uh, Has over like 3.8 million members worldwide, including me. And you can see exactly how REI spends its profits just by going going on the website and you can vote um, for the board of directors, um, which is really cool. That's a really good example of how co-ops are so transparent with their members. Mm-hmm. So what are some other examples of consumer co-ops? Um, like Wheatsville in, uh, in Austin. I think the full name is Wheatsville Food Co-op. Um, which operates much like your local grocery store uh, with the added option to become a part owner of the store. Uh, You pay a small fee and makes you eligible to vote uh, or run for the board of directors. And you even get, you know, access to special promotions and during times where they are especially profitable, you can even get um, some money back. Yeah, that's another great example. And lastly, there are housing co-ops, which can look different everywhere. But in general, housing co-ops offer economic and social advantages that other types of home ownership don't. The economic advantages uh, can include lower down payments, lower closing costs, and longer mortgages. Just overly making co-ops much more affordable than traditional home ownership. And cooperative housing stays affordable. Since they're owned by the members, they don't have reason to increase monthly charges arbitrarily. They would only do this in the case of like higher taxes or higher operating increase. So typically monthly monthly charges remain reasonable. So what about the social advantages of housing co-ops? Well, one of the biggest differences is that the elimination of outside landlords, which offers more control over your living environment and the security of tenure that's not really available in traditional rental housing. Yeah, there's also the community control aspect. So as mutual owners, residents are able to participate in the decision-making process around just the operation of the housing co-op as a whole. Yeah, and and this is a big difference from other types of housing um, that, you know, tenants don't really have a say in what the landlord does with their property because members own the housing co-op and collectively they can remain in their homes for as long as they want and 
you know, as long as they meet their monthly obligations that they've all agreed upon, um, and they they cooperate with the bylaws and the rules and regulations, um, you know, they get to stay and keep making the decisions. We've covered a lot of information so far. We covered the need for health equity, how COVID-19 has made these inequities painfully more obvious, and discussed co-ops. And by this point, you might be wondering what the connection between health equity and co-ops actually is. Well, this is the connection that can be pretty hard to see, but we've gathered some evidence that might help us draw the connection a little clearer. While it's our belief that all types of co-ops can help achieve health equity, the strongest connection that we see is through worker co-ops. And this is for a couple of reasons. Worker co-ops are centered around community and they're employee owned. One piece of this is that neighborhoods really matter for health. By just looking at zip codes, we can actually predict various health outcomes in the areas. And since worker co-ops are operated and owned by members of the community, any profits that they see go directly to them instead of, say, to shareholders or CEOs that, uh, that might not live among that community. This helps increase the collective wealth of a community, which we know to be tremendously helpful for health overall through education, healthcare, and other resources. But more than that, having businesses that are owned by the community members makes it so much more likely that they can identify the needs of their community and give back in meaningful ways that contribute to health. Yeah, that, that sounds great, and it makes sense. Um, but do you have an example? Yes, actually. Wheatsville, which we discussed earlier, has done a really good job of looking out for their community and for their employees. Since COVID started, they reinstated this program they have that's $5 grab-and-go dinner, um, and it provides healthy meals at a reasonable price to mm. people who need it. And also in an interview with the Austin Chronicle pretty recently, a manager from Wheatsville also spoke to how they've been taking care of the employees, saying, quote, at a time when so many Austin businesses have been forced to close their doors and huge portions of the community have been laid off or furloughed, an important part of serving the community is protecting staff jobs. Staying operational and getting food to people who need it is how we can best do that, end quote. That's cool. Um, I've, I've been to Wheatsville, and knowing this actually makes me want to shop there more. Okay, so worker co-ops are invested in the community, which improves the health of individuals in the community by keeping the money local, and that opens up more doors to better resources and also by giving back to the community in meaningful ways. How else can worker co-ops help achieve health equity? Good question. The other piece of this is the difference between being an employee and being an owner. As a part owner of a worker co-op, you get to call the shots. You get to have your voice be heard. So one member, one vote. Exactly. But how does this reduce health inequities? Traditionally structured hierarchical companies often follow worker protections set by the government. So in other words, too often companies do the bare minimum to protect their workers. This isn't always the case, and there are some companies out there that do more to protect their workers, but no matter how you spin it, you really can't be mm. the workers themselves voting on what's safe for them. In this way, the workers don't need to rely on government regulations or labor unions for protection because they get to decide their own working conditions. That makes a lot of sense, and it's hard to argue with that. The ownership model can also reduce health inequities by increasing the level of intrinsic motivation for workers. Decades of research on human motivation show that people perform better at complex tasks when they are intrinsically rather than extrinsically motivated. In other words, people are better at completing complex tasks if they do it for the sake of doing them and actually do worse when offered rewards and bonuses. In fact, and some studies show that the higher the reward in some cases, the worse people performed. And this can reduce health inequities through many different ways, including a higher sense of autonomy 
which is shown to increase job satisfaction, which has implications for not only allostatic load, but for the long-term benefits of the business itself, which in turn has many implications for individual and community health. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I definitely would feel more motivated and just overall better about my work if I have that piece in Mm -hmm. um, business decisions being made. So another implication um, of this is job security, which is essential, which is especially important during times of crisis like we're currently experiencing. So instead of simply letting people go, as we've seen businesses do so frequently throughout the pandemic, the democratic structure of cooperatives allows for a collective decision to be made about how to navigate difficult times and keeps the focus on the well-being of the workers and the community. How individual businesses choose to navigate the pandemic will look different for each co-op, but the point is that no one needs to fear for their livelihood. For a lot of people, job security can mean maintaining health insurance, which is of course crucial to getting financially reasonable medical attention if necessary, and is especially important during a crisis like the pandemic. It also means you don't have to worry about meeting basic needs in the same way that those who were laid off do. This takes away a significant amount of stress, especially in times like these, which are already stressful enough, and just overall reduces a person's allostatic load. Which we know to be harmful to health. Bringing this section to an end, we want to share one last piece of evidence with you, and it comes from the International Journal of Health. It turns out, Sarah and I aren't alone in seeing the connection between co-ops and health equity. Chang and Fraser argue, quote, that the cooperative model is superior to other business modes in promoting social justice and equity is beyond question, end quote. They say this with confidence, drawing from empirical data from the 2007 to 2011 period of financial crisis in Italy, during which employment in cooperatives in Italy increased by 8% compared to a decrease of 2.3% in all types of businesses. Beyond health equity, co-ops are good for the economy, they're good for businesses, and they're good for us. Now that you understand a bit more about health disparities, the types of co-ops, and how they work, you may be wondering what this all has to do with your, your life as a social worker. Well, as social workers, it's really important for us to think critically about the causes of health disparities that our clients may face. In point six of the National Association of Social Workers Code of Ethics, it states that it's the role of a social worker to promote welfare by, quote, advocating for living conditions conducive to the fulfillment of basic human needs, end quote, and promote social, economic, political, and cultural values and institutions that are compatible with the realization of social justice. This means that social workers should be pushing for the creation of environments that are concerned with the well-being of the individual, instead of just focusing on profit and efficiency, like we often see happen. Definitely. A lot of work environments aren't person-centered at all, and actually have the potential to be harmful in the long run for all the reasons that we've already discussed. In our social work practice, we need to be looking for ways to fight the systems of oppression identified in this podcast, while simultaneously looking for environments like cooperatives, which make the clients feel supported instead of exploited. Our Code of Ethics also talks about how important it is for us to be a part of socio-political action that, quote, seeks to ensure that all people have equal access to the resources employment, services, and opportunities they require to meet their basic human needs and develop fully, end quote. This is a really critical point. Political action and advocating for policies to support marginalized groups should not be taken lightly. Social workers need to, ad- need to actively work on identifying the negative impacts of our existing systems and looking for ways to be part of making change. And co-ops are a really good alternative to the current business structure that can help do this. And it's just one example of societal change that can help eliminate health disparities. By creating person-centered environments in which people feel more secure in their livelihood, co-ops are a step towards eliminating some of the barriers to health that we've identified. Definitely. 
co-ops won't solve everything, but they are an advancement toward, toward creating systems that are more supportive of the people they serve and strengthening their sense of community. And that brings us to the last point, which is that as social workers, we should never underestimate the importance of human relationships. The Code of Ethics also says that we should, quote, seek to strengthen relationships among people in a purposeful effort to promote, restore, maintain, and enhance the well-being of individuals, families, social groups, organizations, and communities, end quote. Yeah, and that's basically one of the main goals uh, of co-ops, which is to take institutions that have been historically been points of stress and replace them with communities of support. Exactly. Cooperatives return autonomy to the people they serve and create spaces that feel safe and supported, allowing for relationships that are mutually beneficial to all members of the community to flourish. We know that co-ops aren't a magic bullet to achieving health equity. It's going to take a lot more than that. Co-ops are just one component in a holistic approach to health. But we want to help you imagine how differently your city may feel, how much healthier it would be if all the business of ado- all businesses adopted some of the co-op values, focusing on uplifting people and communities over profit. So to find worker co-ops in your area, visit www.usworker.coop forward slash directory. Another great resource for finding specifically food co-ops is www.grocer.coop forward slash C-O-O-P-S. Thanks for listening. Now go out there and support your local co-ops.